0: You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. Later in this episode, are nuclear weapons becoming more or less relevant? Georgia talks to deterrence expert Dr. Brad Roberts. Trump, India and the Quad, oh my, Akriti interviews Derek Grossman. But first up, Lisa Sharlin spoke with Aussie Major General Cheryl Pearce, who's the next force commander of the UN peacekeeping mission in Cyprus and also only the second woman to be appointed force commander of a UN peacekeeping mission in the organisation's history.
1: Well, I'm delighted to be here with uh, Brigadier Cheryl Pearce, who's currently the Commandant of the Australian Defence Academy. And just over a month ago, the UN Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, announced that you had been appointed as the next Force Commander of the UN Peacekeeping Mission in Cyprus. So Cheryl, we'd like to welcome you to the podcast today. Thanks, Lisa. Um, It's a delight to have you here. And I think for our listeners, there's a couple of things that's really key with your appointment. One, that you're one of a very few number of Australian military personnel who've been appointed to command a UN peacekeeping mission. Um, and also, you're the, the second woman who has been appointed to command a UN peacekeeping mission in its 70-year history. So, I, I think that's quite significant.
2: It was a real privilege to be nominated. And then the, certainly through the selection process, I wasn't sure that uh, whether I would be the one that they wanted and I was pleasantly surprised that I was selected and now I'm really looking forward to the opportunity and the challenges ahead.
1: No, that's fantastic. And we're we're grateful that you're here, given you have so much on your plate as you prepare for that new role. But we thought we'd we'd use today to get a bit of a a sense of sort of what your career has been like and some of the expectations you have going into this role. So I thought I might start with you telling us a little bit about why you joined the Australian Defence Force and sort of what have been the, the highlights and the challenges for you?
2: No, thanks, Lisa. Look, I joined uh, as a young 18-year-old and from country South Australia. I knew that I wanted to be part of something larger than myself and I didn't really have a strong understanding of what the military is about. And I joined in 1985 as part of the first year of integrated training. So females and males, it was the first year that we trained together. And it has been a journey of firsts from there over my career. And uh, I look back fondly. I have no regrets. I've had a, a great um, career thus far and a lot of opportunities, which I've really relished. And the highlights for me have been those command opportunities. And right back as a young lieutenant, as a platoon commander, training recruits at Kapuka and watching and being part of their development from they joined you know as young 17 18 year olds I was only 22 at this stage but I thought I was old and wise um and through to you know them grad them graduating uh, 12 weeks later into soldiers into the Australian army and then you know in the latter half of my career uh, I went through I had a you know opportunity to command as a lieutenant colonel both of the defence police training centre then of the military police battalion which is an operational battalion and then through now in my in my recent years, as uh, as a commander task group Afghanistan, and then now as a commandant of uh, the Defence Force Academy, uh, and you know another command opportunity now coming forward in in uh, as a force commander of of our uh, UN forces in Cyprus. So they would be the highlights. Look, the challenges have. I look back and reflect on my younger self uh, as a female. The challenges were significant. Um, I look back at that first ten years, that first decade, and uh, reflect more about. I wish I had um, used my voice. You know, we went. You tried really hard to stay under the radar, and you really wanted to be grey and fit in as part of the team. You, you didn't voice your own opinions. You really wanted to be part of the the group. Um, So that I look back now and I really encourage uh, our young officer cadets and midshipmen about having their voice going forward. Uh, Other challenges were as my background being military police is really uh, within the military, getting them to understand the legitimacy of the role of military police in the Australian Army. And uh, both domestically and operationally, and that brought certainly a lot of challenges with it.
1: it's It's an incredible career, and I think um you alluded to to some of the challenges, particularly early on, being a woman serving. And as you'd probably be aware, one of the challenges for UN peacekeeping is that there's only around sort of four percent of the military component is is female, and there's a real effort internationally to double that and I think you're in quite a unique position having um, not only having your command post but you're now the commandant of ADFA, the Australian Defence Force Academy and that has been I guess an area where a lot of Australia's attention has been focused on recruiting and fostering women into the Defence Force. So how do you think we're tracking on that front?
2: I think we're... um we're very much focused. The ADF, uh, and certainly under General Campbell, is very much focused in really creating that uh, inclusive and diverse uh, workforce, and really being able to to target opening up all the employment specific employment categories now to allow women to join and do whatever you you want to do, to be what you what you choose to be in your career, and not be limited by your gender. Uh, In doing that, it it brings its own um, challenges as we try to recruit into those employment categories that haven't been traditionally um, open to women. The ADFA, at at Australian Defence Force Academy, uh, we have 25% uh, females at ADFA and it really is aligned to what's defence's intake. So if we talk about intake, Army is at about 20%, Navy 30%, and, Uh, Air Force at about 40%. And we represent that. The challenges for Defence now is, uh, if we're sitting at 17% within our workforce, is those that we attract in is how to retain them and really focus in some of the initiatives and creating the work environment where we would be respectful to all that wants it to be a place of choice for work for women as much as it is for men.
1: No, I think that's a very fair point and and one that's not unique to Australia. A lot of militaries are, are facing this at the moment. Another aspect um, that I think is is quite interesting to explore is this concept of leadership. You're going into a a force commander post. You've had extensive experience throughout your career. What leadership qualities will you bring as the force commander of of the mission in Cyprus?
2: Look, I sort of tell people, um, what do you bring differently and what makes you different from a male? I said, I don't know, I haven't been a male, so I can't comment on that. But for me, uh, leadership to me is about being authentic. Uh, being who you are, you can't be anybody else. And when you face challenges or it is a difficult environment, you have to be who you have to be true to yourself. Humility as a leader is a really key uh, characteristic or a key value that I have. Um, being respectful to everybody, it doesn't matter where their culture, their background, their rank. It's being respectful and communicating in that way, and uh, and I'm linking into just communication. A lot of people don't like having the difficult conversations. It's really important to communicate openly and be transparent, be fair, and be consistent in 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 that communication. Um, and lastly, as a leader, you've got to love what you do, and uh, you know if you don't do that, it doesn't come across like that. And so for me, in the leadership, in the appointment. There are two parts. There's one is about establishing the relationships and creating an environment where people feel like they've got a purpose and they can value add and that's really important. But the bottom line is, is that I will have the legal authority to order. So as a female, it doesn't concern me as a command as a female because in the end it is that lawful authority. Establishing the relationships and the and creating the work environment, a positive work environment. Is important to me and that's certainly the part that work on and then you know the other half of my job which is always in the UN which is really that diplomatic that political that establishing the relationships and really working hard at understanding um, different points of view and really focusing on that active listening very quick we always want to fix things but it's actually listening is probably the other key element of leadership which I'd like to think I can bring to the table.
1: I think that's incredibly useful, particularly going into a multinational environment. As you said, I think there's so many important skill sets there that, that you'll be bringing to bear given your experience, um, which is really, really worthwhile. I guess just to sort of wrap up our conversation, and it's it's a point that gets um, raised sometimes in international context, is a little bit about Australia's history and engagement in UN peacekeeping. And as you would know, Australia has a very proud history. You yourself served in the UN mission in Timor. However, while Australia's contributions are really highly valued, our number of people that we have deployed at the moment is, is quite historically low. And even in the case of the mission in Cyprus, where Australia had the Australian Federal Police serving for over 50 years, mm that's now a commitment that um, has withdrawn. So your appointment is really significant um, from Australia's perspective to be heading up this mission. And with that in mind, why is it important that Australia participate in UN peacekeeping?
2: Australia is part of the global community. You know, we're a member of the UN and we contribute in uh, more niche areas. Uh, We're not a large force by any measure. And uh, by contributing where we have the skill set, and where we're best placed, such as in operations and logistics, and, in, and now in command appointments, is where Australia best and the military best sees us um, fitting. Also, um, you know, we're focused very much on the regional area and our prioritisation of a scant resource of where where we put that. Um, certainly, you know, Australia's commitment in uh, East Timor, which I was part of. Uh, was significant for Australia and we contributed in a number of different ways, which one was the UN. So we will continue to have that presence and certainly my for myself but also taking three um, staff with me. So I have another three Australians who will support me uh, in my role and responsibilities in Cyprus, we'll just tick those numbers up a little bit, but I think Australia will always contribute as part of the UN, is my personal opinion. Uh, it will just be in what role and what our capacity is as as a defence force.
1: No, well, look, I think that's a fantastic note to, to finish on looking forward. And I would really like to say thank you so much for your time today, Cheryl. And I, I think many of us would say, wishing you the best of luck as you take up this um, new appointment. Thank you. Thanks, Lisa.
0: Georgia recently interviewed Dr. Brad Roberts, director of Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory's Center for Global Security Research, and the author of The Case for U.S. Nuclear Weapons in the 21st
3: Century. So in a context where many argue that states retain nuclear weapons simply for their deterrence factor, why are nuclear powers modernizing their nuclear arsenals?
4: Because none of the nuclear powers have decided that they would be safer without them. Uh, nuclear weapons age. Uh, in the case of the United States, for example, the newest nuclear weapon in our arsenal went in in 1991. None of our nuclear weapons were designed to have an expected shelf life of more than 25 years. They remain safe, but they need to be life-extended. Uh, so un- until a time comes when the nuclear weapon states feel that they would be safer without their deterrence they must periodically modernize them.
3: So the idea of deterrence and that states won't deploy their nuclear weapons unless absolutely necessary, how does that alter the threshold for conflict in an area or a region like the Asia Pacific?
4: The dilemma of nuclear deterrence is that we're trying to create the conditions where these weapons are never used. And in order to deter, you must be seen capable and ready to act in the event your enemy creates the circumstance where they've crossed that red line, so deterrence requires a credible ability to employ nuclear weapons under attack. Uh, and in in the Asia Pacific, well, the United States doesn't have any nuclear weapons. They're all there were nuclear weapons in this in Northeast Asia during the Cold War. They all went home in 1991 and 92. Uh, the Chinese. And Russians have nuclear weapons in the region, and now, of course, North Korea. Uh, and they, all, all of these actors need to be able to display their ability to employ these weapons uh, in order to be credible in their deterrence threats.
3: So what is the role of nuclear weapons specifically for the U.S. following the nuclear posture review?
4: So I need to give you a little context for this one. In, in, in the Cold War, nuclear weapons played an absolutely central role in American defense strategy. This had to do with the the character of the problem presented to us by the Soviet Union and life in a bipolar world. Since the end of the Cold War, the United States, every president until the current one, has expressed a commitment to reduce the role of nuclear weapons in our defense strategy. And this followed from the obvious fact that the Soviet Union had gone away, the Cold War had ended, and we moved into a world where there was really no viable pathway to nuclear conflict. And it was easy to move nuclear weapons from the center and put them in the margins of our defense strategy. But we've kind of turned a corner, haven't we? With the renewal of major power rivalry, uh, and in particular Russia's significant re-embrace of nuclear weapons and its recommitment to the regular threatening of nuclear war against NATO, this has created the condition where we could no longer confidently further reduce the role. Uh, A change in the external environment made that impractical. So today, the fundamental role of of nuclear weapons in U.S. defense strategy remains to deter uh, nuclear employment or other threats to the vital interests of the United States or an ally, to assure allies that these kinds of threats to them will not materialize, and to provide strategic stability so that neither Russia nor China believe that they can somehow gain an upper hand in the strategic military competition with the United States and thus dictate their terms for world order.
3: So considering the current regional context and Russia's um, resurgence in the use of nuclear threats, what impact has the Trump administration had on the U.S. extended deterrence to its regional allies in the Asia-Pacific?
4: Well, an ambiguous one. Uh, On on the one hand, the statements of the president during the campaign and and his subsequent treatment of U.S. allies has raised questions about the degree of the American commitment to defend U.S. allies if if they were to be attacked. I think these concerns, frankly, are overstated in, in the sense that it's one thing to hint at the possibility that, that allies might not be defended and it would be another thing to stand by idly while their vital interests are being savaged somehow. Uh, I believe our alliance relationships actually remain very strong, despite caustic words occasionally from our president. Uh, but I said the effect was ambivo- uh, ambiguous. The, the, uh, the other fact of the matter is that extended deterrence has been a central preoccupation of the Department of Defense in conducting its reviews of nuclear policy and posture, conventional policy and posture, missile defense, cyber policy and the like. And the administration has tried to do a number of things that it thought were necessary and useful to strengthen extended deterrence. So extended deterrence remains a, a consensus priority in the United States and a, and a strong focus of our defense strategy
3: quite good to hear. Um, but, But in one scenario, could you see a state such as Australia, considering we've got China, Russia, and North Korea within proximity to the region, could you see a state committing to developing a nuclear arsenal?
4: From an Australian perspective, it seems to me two main developments would have to come to pass. One would be the emergence of a much more clear, explicit, and direct nuclear threat of a kind that would call into question potentially the survival of the Australian state and society. That isn't what is so far present in the security environment. It might yet take shape. Uh, And the other factor would be an end to, or at least a loss of confidence in, the American commitment to defend Australia by all means necessary. That could happen as the result of a severance of our political relationship in some way. It could result from, if there were to be a major Russian push against NATO and Europe uh, and the United States were to choose not to defend or conversely were to defend in a way that were seen in retrospect to be heavy-handed and excessive, both of the, those developments could undermine the commitment of Australians to or their confidence that the American guarantee would stand up under, under test. So I know there are many other technical factors that would bear on an Australian decision about a nuclear deterrent of its own. But I think it's those two fundamental factors that would drive the choice.
3: So, looking more at the region, particularly the North Korea situation at the moment, what do you think are the prospects for irreversible denuclearization of the peninsula?
4: Not great, but worth finding out. This is an experiment that's worth running. Uh, this is a diplomatic and political breakthrough uh, that, uh, after a decade or more of gridlock is, is worth exploring, and it's conceivable that Mr. Kim would settle for what he's said he would settle for, uh, a peace deal in which the existing North Korean state remains for the, for the long term. But it's not likely, in my view. My concern is that it's going to take a long time for this to become clear which direction we're headed, and during that time, quite evidently, he continues to strengthen his nuclear and missile force while we continue to pause. And this will result in a kind of shifting military balance over time.
3: And just looking at the, the U.S. domestic context, do you think that a change in government from a Republican to a Democrat leader would benefit or worsen the situation, considering that a lot of this has been based on the relationship between Trump and Kim Jong-un.
4: The breakthrough follows from the personal dynamic between the two leaders, definitely. Uh, But the breakthrough wouldn't end with political transition in one or both countries. So long as there's a plausible chance for a peace for the people on the Korean Peninsula and in the region, and that eliminates a threat to all of the rest of us, I think any American leader is going to want to pursue that chance to a reasonable point of satisfaction. But no American leader is going to want to be strung out for a very long term in, through uncertainty on, on, on all of this. because In part because what happens here is directly consequential to what happens in the Middle East where we have an equally significant nuclear problem uh, but of a different kind.
3: And do you have any final comments? on? the nuclear situation of the region or more broadly in the U.S. politics?
4: Well, I think there's an additional f- factor in the nuclear policy landscape here in Australia that's worth, worth a brief discussion, and this is the uh, discussion about the future of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, the so-called Nuclear Ban Treaty. In discussion among many U.S. allies is the question of what to do about this treaty. On the one hand, it seems like a perfectly useful and constructive protest vote, protesting the glacial pace at which nuclear disarmament has proceeded among the nuclear weapon states. But on the other hand, there is another hand, uh, which is it's not just a protest vote. Uh, Allies who sign this treaty, who who see it enter into force, will be obliged to not uh, participate in any deterrence-related activities with a nuclear-armed state. This means that, for example, some of our um, space-based situational awareness capabilities, uh, this is a form of cooperation that would have to stop, because it's a part of the early warning for America of attack on on Australia. And there's a related question for those who are attracted to the ban because of its protest attribute, and that's what constitutes real moral leadership on the nuclear problem. Those of us who work the deterrence end of the equation don't claim that all of the moral high ground is ours, but, because these are, after all, deeply abhorrent weapons. Uh, and we would all be off, better off in a world rid of them. The moral high ground has to come from the taking leadership on the disarmament agenda in, in a constructive direction. A protest vote is not a constructive direction. Both ends of this debate, the deters and the disarmers, can agree that there's a long pathway to disarmament. It's not around the corner tomorrow well, let's work together on what the conditions are that we need to create that would make it possible to take those next steps. What are the next steps? We don't have even agreement on what the next steps would be. So I think there's an opportunity here for Australia, committed to a world free of nuclear weapons, committed to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, but seeking to ensure that deterrence is effective for the problems for which it's relevant. It's possible to balance all of these pieces and, and to do so in a constructive way.
3: What are the impacts of the U.S.'s current political situation and the ideas around the use of nuclear weapons on the long-term relationship with China?
4: Uncertain. Uh, The long-term relationship with China is, of course, uncertain. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't know what kind of China is coming. The Chinese don't know what kind of China is coming. We don't know if this is going to be a China that thinks with Mr. Putin, new rules or no rules and is thus a caustic presence in, in our security environment? Or is it a China that becomes a partner, a part of the community that seeks to cooperate rather than seeks deference from all of us? We don't know what kind of China is coming. And of course, we don't know what kind of America is coming either. Uh, I, I'm deeply convinced we're committed to a rules-based international order and to cooperation with allies and partners to promote global goods. But I recognize that in this region there's uncertainty about what kind of America becomes. The nuclear question is trapped in the middle of all of that. We can imagine that nuclear weapons will remain in the background where they've been through essentially the entire nuclear era in the U.S.-China relationship but they're creeping out from the background. We don't want them to come into the foreground. We don't want to have a nuclear competition with China. The Chinese don't want a nuclear competition with us. Uh, But how we manage this relationship when we, we promote transparency, the Chinese don't believe in transparency. We promote arms control, they don't believe in arms control. How we manage this unfolding nuclear relationship is a big unanswered question so far.
3: Oh, thank you very much for sitting down with us.
4: My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: And now you'll hear from McCready, who interviewed Derek Grossman, Senior
5: Defense Analyst for the RAND Corporation on the Quad and Trump in the Indo-Pacific region. We see a dichotomy between President Trump's America first agenda and his administration's uh, ambitious commitment to the Indo-Pacific region. Um, How do you reconcile that?
6: Well, thanks for having me. Um, so I think Trump's America First policy is mainly about writing trade relationships throughout throughout the world, uh, also, of course, in the Indo-Pacific region. And so a lot of uh, really, when it comes to the Indo-Pacific, you got to look back at Trump's decision to pull out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership or the TPP, because he thought that those trade relationships were unfair and that he wanted to forge ahead with bilateral free trade uh, relationships uh, with, with certain countries. Now, that does not necessarily take away from the Indo-Pacific strategy, which mm-hmm. I've focused on quite closely uh, during my time at RAND. And I think the Indo-Pacific strategy uh, is correct in the sense that it talks about the, the need to ensure that the region is free and open quote-unquote mm-hmm. from coercive behavior from an unnamed country and I think we all know that that unnamed country is China right uh, and so you can look at the national security strategy of the of the United States as well as the national defense strategy uh, and there is a lot of talk there about being able to push back on more aggressive Chinese behavior especially in the South China Sea and there is there are a lot of details on that that um, I won't get into at the yeah. moment but uh, <laughs> maybe in a follow-up question.
5: Sure. Earlier this year, your foreign policy piece on India being the weakest link in the Quad uh, generated some debate. D- given the developments that have taken place recently, including the successful um, Quad meeting in Singapore, do you still feel the same or do you think there's been a change?
6: Well, so I, I would push back a little bit on the idea that the third Quad meeting was successful. Okay. I actually do not think it was successful. Right. Um, Y- you can look at the fact that unlike previous quad meetings, all four members this time around were not able to reach a joint communique. They yeah. issued their own separate communiques. And I also think expectations in Australia of of, um, of India's participation in the quad are a bit different than U.S. Ex- expectations. Right. Um, and And it's interesting because as I've gone around town these last couple of days here in Canberra. Uh, I've definitely gotten the Australian perspective, which seems to be that well, Australia-India relations are, are have traditionally been tense, mm-hmm. and so you can't really expect that much. Mm-hmm. And when India talks about um, countering China's uh, Belt and Road Initiative and talks about doing some softer, you know, uh, humanitarian assistance, disaster relief style exercises in the Quad, that those are kind of those are those are big uh, achievements. Right. in uh, India's part- participation. But from the U.S. perspective, in September, we had the 2 plus 2 dialogue yep. where um, uh, Secretaries of State and Defense, uh, Pompeo and, and Mattis, went to New Delhi yep. and had very, very important meetings in India with yep. with real substantive deliverables. Yep. Uh, and so the U.S.-India relationship from the U.S. perspective is progressing very, very well. Right. And so in the context of the Quad... I think we tend to want to believe that India is going to do more based mm-hmm. upon that bilateral relationship. But sure. when India gets into the into the quadrilateral relationship, things tend to be different. So I would, just to answer your question, say that I don't think a lot has changed mm-hmm. um, since I wrote that piece. I right. think it's mainly because expectations maybe are a little bit higher yeah. from a U.S. perspective.
5: Yeah, um, I'm not sure if you've had a chance to read, but uh, Dhruva Jeshankar from Brookings, India wrote an interesting piece on the strategist, uh, where he said that the quad should be seen more as a matrix for, for facilitating more uh, bilateral and trilateral, um, you know, engagements within the quad setup, which I thought was really interesting. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, we could, we could go on talking about it um, all day. I also understand that you advocate that the court should be expanded to include a Southeast Asian nation. And Vietnam being an ideal candidate, according to you. what do, Why do you say that? And why not Indonesia, given that, you know, Indonesia has a much larger economy than Vietnam?
6: So just to be clear, I, I don't say any Southeast Asian country. What I, what I say in the piece is a maritime counterclaimant right. country that is within ASEAN. Um, and, you know, because Taiwan is technically a maritime counterclaimant, not in ASEAN. So there are, you know, you got to be specific here. Um, And of those countries, so really, you know, you would look at Vietnam, um, Malaysia, the Philippines as, you know, your top three, Mm -hmm. but then Indonesia technically is not a counterclaimant, but has frictions in the North and the with with China. So of those countries, the reason why I think Vietnam makes the most sense is because it has the largest number of disputed territories in the South China Sea vis-a-vis China, mm. and also has is still kind of living in the shadow of the May 2014 oil rig standoff in which Beijing put an oil rig in disputed waters. And the Vietnamese felt outgunned, outmanned, uh, and didn't really feel like they had many options. And so what you've seen in the last few years is, I think, truly remarkable that Vietnam has diversified its defense relationships in the region and has even gone outside of the region to do Uh, uh, first the first ever joint exercise with India India. in the South China Sea. So Vietnam is truly and of course, India is a member of the quad. So India or uh, Vietnam is truly concerned about events in the South China Sea. Mm -hmm. And so for that reason, I think Vietnam would be a really good candidate. But also from a broader quad perspective, it does kind of look like like minded democratic countries are ganging up on China to contain China. And that just adds to the Chinese narrative that this is the wrong, wrong-headed policy and that China needs to push back. Whereas if you include a maritime counterclaimant like Vietnam, I think it adds more legitimacy to the idea that this really is about ensuring that China doesn't do any more land grabs right. like in, like they did in Scarborough back mm-hmm. in 2012. Right. Because there is they, there are legitimate concerns of regional neighbors of this type of behavior.
5: Right, okay. And so am I uh, right in guessing that you're a proponent of ASEAN centrality, um, you know, advocating for ASEAN centrality within, uh, within the Quad?
6: Well, ideally, yeah. yes. Okay. But ASEAN is so diverse mm-hmm. in its interests... Yeah. Um, it would be difficult. I mean obviously you know everybody always points to Cambodia and Laos and Burma and Thailand. I mean these are not counterclaimant countries so they don't have nearly as much interest in the issue um but so so when we talk about ASEAN inclusivity, ASEAN as a group, it would be difficult to right. convince them that they would need to play a role in the in, in those issues. but for the ones that are counterclaimants, obviously trends, Uh, at least publicly, seem to be going in the wrong direction. I mean, you could look at Duterte and how he said bye-bye to the U.S., hello to Beijing, but that hasn't really worked out too well, and Mm -hmm. the Philippine defense establishment is still forging ahead with very close relations with the U.S., doing exercises and and other uh, planning efforts to deal with China's military expansion in the region. Mahathir you know surprise election there in Malaysia but uh, and he's typically stayed to his non-aligned foreign policy but he's also forged very close relations with Japan and that I'm sure doesn't make China too uh, comfortable Mm -hmm. and also is now wants to renegotiate Belt and Road Initiative uh, deals that were signed under his predecessor so I'm not convinced necessarily that Malaysia is, is you know Totally middle of the line, not choosing between China and the U.S. yet. Sure. Uh, you you might be able to argue, I think, persuasively that Mahathir is actually bending more toward Japan and the U.S. at this point than than China. And in Indonesia, they thought they had a handshake agreement with with China on uh, the the Natunias, yep. North Natunias region, and there have been a lot of fishing frictions there. Yes. Uh, and the Indonesians now are getting pretty serious about plussing up their military presence and maybe even consolidating um, their multiple agencies that they have for maritime law enforcement into a Coast Guard uh, agency. So Mm -hmm. I think a lot is kind of churning beneath the typical headlines that ASEAN counterclaimants are, you know, just still middle of the road. I'm not not entirely sure about that.
5: I have this really, you know, this question that I need to ask you. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've asked this question to a few Americans. Would you say that Trump is a symptom of a general current of isolationist inward-looking tendencies within the U.S.? Or is he an outlier?
6: Hmm. Well, I I think a lot of our... um, That's a really tough question to answer. (laughs) Um, I'm sure. You know, I think there's a lot of reasons why Trump got elected, and most of them are not very well understood in mm-hmm. America. I'm not going to go into all of those reasons because it's not, you know, my area of expertise, but suffice it to say, the United States has not always repositioned itself successfully to deal with the pressures of globalization.
5: Mm-hmm.
6: The United States for for decades has been the number one proponent of globalization and free trade. Right. But when the effects of globalization finally started to take hold, and I'd argue that was maybe at least 20 years ago. The United States did not respond well, Mm -hmm. uh, in my view, to losing jobs to other countries, namely to China, to India, to elsewhere. Uh, It did not come up with new economies Mm -hmm. and new ways of putting those out-of-work people into jobs, and those people got frustrated. Mm. And the reaction, I think, over time is kind of what we're – you know, it's a long tail of a reaction that we're kind of seeing now play out and congressional gridlock as an example of, you know, rural versus urban uh, areas. I mean, obviously rural areas tend to, ha- you know, have more problems with, um, with finding employment and there's some jealousy about urban areas and how there's more employment there in those places. So I think that that uh, has been a key issue, response to globalization and Trump, I think, is, is kind of um, an example, the latest example of how that's playing out.
5: Right. Thanks very much for your time this morning, Derek. It was great talking to you.
6: Okay, thanks. Yeah, it was great to be here.
0: That's it for this episode of Policy, Guns & Money. Our last episode of the year will be out on the 20th of December. You'll hear from Aspie's Executive Director, Peter Jennings, for his assessment of the biggest moments of 2018 and the state of the region for next year.